today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 55, which is on page 615 in your Pew Bible. If you'd like to follow along otherwise, it's on the screen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is God's word. Well, good morning, friends. What a, what a special gift and privilege it is to be able to open God's word together with you all. I just have to kind of take it in. There's lots of faces I see and recognize, and, and many that I don't. I want you to know we have missed you all. We love you all. This is just a sweet, sweet uh, privilege. Um, so a big thank you to Travis and Bruce for the invitation to, to be able to um, preach this morning. Um, and this is totally unrelated to the sermon, but uh, for <laughs> we are just, if you want to catch up afterwards, not, you know, I don't want to take anybody away from the prayer gathering right after the service, but we're going to Panera at Natick, and if other friends happen to show up there too, and, and we get a chance to catch up, that's a wonderful thing, so um, we were going to try and do something like that at the park, but I guess it's supposed to be blasted hot today, so we thought air conditioning is our friend, but... Uh, what a gift. Um, just get let, uh, I'll start with just a very brief personal update. Um, so we've been in Cedar Rapids, Iowa for two years this month, which seems impossible to believe. Um, God has been very gracious in, in the transition. Uh, he's given us a wonderful church family, a uh, wonderful staff team and, and team of elders to work with in our, in our common mission before the Lord. Um, I think like everyone else, this has been the last 15 months have been something else. It's been a challenge. We've, we've endured some of the exact same challenges that you all have 
faced here walking through trying to navigate uh, the COVID. And, and uh, on, in addition to that, we had a major storm come through last August that took off part of the roof of our building and uh, um, uh, wiped out 60% of the tree canopy in Cedar Rapids in about 45 minutes. So it was a pretty, pretty intense thing. So then we had that. We were not only COVID we couldn't worship, but then we didn't even have a building we could go to for, for several months. But in all of that, the Lord has been kind. The generosity of, of people from all over the country, including right here, helping us get back into our facility um, Lord willing, I, I'm on sabbatical right now, so I'm not trying not to check my email. But theoretically, they should have finished all of the roof renovations and all of that in the last week or so. So uh, the Lord has been kind, but the last 15 months have been a really long, weird road for all of us. And yet, in all of that, the Word of God has never failed. I mean, think about that. For all of the chaos and all of the confusion and all of the loss and the frustration and the division and the polarization, all of, all of the gross that we've experienced for the last 15 months, the Word of God has never failed in the midst of that. And that's what I want to reflect on this morning from Isaiah 55. So if you still have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to keep those open some of you will know that Isaiah served during one of the most tumultuous periods of ancient Israel's history. So God's people were divided very literally. They were divided into two different nations, two different kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And one of those kingdoms was destroyed and carried off into exile during Isaiah's life and ministry. He watched the northern kingdom of God fall. And part of his ministry was announcing to the southern kingdom, Judah, that the same thing was going to happen to them. That was his ministry. It's going to get worse. That's a, that's a big part of what God sent him to do because they too had broken God's covenant. They would be overturned and carried off to Babylon where they would live in exile. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Isaiah 39, 6. But just as important as the warning that God gave Isaiah to give to Israel, in fact, more important to his message was the word of promise that judgment was not going to be God's final word to his people. Rather, forgiveness, pardon, reconciliation, life, renewal, that was God's word. That was God's promise. A word of promise living to, to, to a people living in chaos and longing for restoration. And that's God's word of promise to us still today. It's what we find in this chapter. And so I want us to see two things in particular. First is the invitation to listen to God's word, to listen to his word, to hear his promises in verses one to five. And then second, the encouragement to take God at his word, to trust the word that we hear in verses six to 13. We can take God at his word 
even when his ways surprise us and his word of promise stand, even, even when his word of promise, his, his promise of redemption, even when that sounds too good to be true. And so he, he starts with an invitation, verses 1 to 5. Come, everyone who thirsts, everyone, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. God calls the hungry, the thirsty, weary people to join him for a feast. Yeah, you think of, of those living in war-torn contexts, or, or you think of those who, who are experiencing their own exile. You'll think of a, of a refugee camp, or those whose situation is just deep poverty, where you genuinely do not know where your next meal is going to come from. And to, to hear someone coming down the streets inviting you to a feast, like, that's, there's joy and anticipation and expectation in that. That's the picture of, of, of ancient Judah, only their emptiness was not just physical, but spiritual. When you're on the brink of exile, or when you're a later generation living in exile, or still later generations experiencing the echoes of exile in the daily rhythms of life in a fallen world, an invitation to a feast like this sounds pretty good. And, and some of us can feel that weariness, right? That chaos. We're tired from COVID. There, there, there's a spiritual and emotional thinness that some of us feel. You know, tired from COVID, tired from uh, things changing constantly. As soon as you adjust your expectations to now it's going to be like this, something else happens and you've got to redo the whole process again. Tired of walking in the unknown, tired of all of the division that just seems to eat away at the people of God. God says, come, come, everyone who thirsts. And his invitation here almost sounds too good to be true. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so there's, there's a purchase involved. You're buying something, but no money required. The feast is on someone else's tab. We'll come back to that in a minute. And this feast that God invites his people to will satisfy like nothing else. If you look again at verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread or your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. God's saying to those who, who insist on covering the tab yourself or or who prefer shopping, you know, the spiritual buffets uh, out there, like some spiritual food court, he's telling me, you're only going to be disappointed. If, if you think you can buy this yourself or find it anywhere else, you're only going to be disappointed. There's nothing you can buy or work for in this world, and there's no other menu that will satisfy, like the feast that God invites you to delight in for free. And you can't improve on that. But what's actually on the menu? 
What's, what's he inviting us to feast on? Well, when you keep reading, you realize the food he invites us to eat is nothing less than his very word. It's the word of God, his word of promise, his word of pardon. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. To come to God is to listen to his word. The, the threefold repetition of come in verse 1 is matched with a, a threefold invitation to hear or listen in verses 2 and 3. So to come to God is to listen. It's to feed on his word. And we listen to God by opening his scriptures. This is the feast. This is the feast. God's word of promise, as, as Ray Ortland explains, how do we taste God's delights? By listening diligently to his word. Patient, open-minded, careful, pouring over this truth in the gospel, thinking it through again and again, the way that you savor something that you enjoy. This is the essential ingredient to the life that is truly life. Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Eager listening to God's word is the same as coming to him. Incline your ear and come to me. And so what does God actually promise us in his word? When we start digging in and, and savoring it, what is this word of promise? Uh, and, and what we find, it's the very thing we're all looking for and hungering and thirsting for, whether we realize it or not, is communion with God. It's to know and enjoy the God of the universe, the, the one who made us for that relationship, the smile of our maker. It's, it's to be reconciled and have peace with the God who made us, his pardon. And, and it's a life in forgiveness with God, which according to Isaiah is available specifically through Israel's Messiah. Israel's Messiah. Look again at verse three. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So, so what is this everlasting covenant, and what, is, what does David have to do with it? Well, if you'll remember, ancient Israel had broken their covenant with God, right? God had, had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He'd made them his special people. He gave them his law so that they would have this relationship together, his covenant. And instead, they gave their worship to the false gods of the nations around them and broke their covenant with God. Their covenant with God was cut off. It was broken. It was cut off. But here, God promises a different kind of covenant, an everlasting covenant, a covenant that cannot be cut off. It cannot be broken. A relationship with God that will last forever. And that eternal relationship that he offers here is anchored in his eternal covenant with David. And David was that great king of Israel, right? He was the king God had chose to, to set on his throne. 
to be his representative. He tells us in verse four, behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. But more than just what God accomplished through David's life, during David's life, God made a promise, a covenant to David that he would set one of his descendants on his throne forever. And that was that unbreakable, everlasting covenant, an unconditional covenant. So, so whereas God's covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai could be broken by his people, God will always keep his word, but his people could break the covenant, this promise to David was unbreakable. And in keeping that covenant and raising up David's descendant to sit on Israel's throne forever, God would bring life and forgiveness and reconciliation, not just to his people Israel, but to all people from all nations. If you look at verse 5, which is kind of this, this, you know, the prophet looking forward into the future to speak to that descendant who would one day come, he says this. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. God will restore relationship with his people through the Son of David, through his promised Messiah. And it's no coincidence that that when you get to the Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Son of David 21 times. He is, as Romans 1 puts it, descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. That's our Savior. The life that God promises for our souls, this invitation to this feast in, in Isaiah 55, the living water we all thirst for, God has made available to us through his promised king, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the promise of his word. And that promise of life, once again, is free. There's, there's a purchase involved, but there's no money necessary because the feast has already been paid for. The king in Isaiah 55 is also the servant in Isaiah 53, which means the feast has been paid for. The one, he's the one who was pierced for our transgression and crushed, crushed for our iniquities. He is the one upon whom the punishment that brought us peace was laid and by whose wounds we have been healed. And so Jesus himself paid the price by giving his life in our place, by taking the sin that, that ruins and fills our lives, by taking our sin on himself and giving us his righteousness. So there is a purchase involved, but no money required, as Christ has paid it in full in advance. The fee is covered come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? No entry fee, no penance, no performance, no money. Jesus is enough. That's God's word of promise. That's his invitation to find the life that Christ alone 
can give. But hearing God's word is one thing. Trusting the word that we hear is sometimes harder and a, and a different thing. And, and, and so the prophet continues to go and, and speak to the people of God. Sometimes trusting God is easier said than done. Sometimes that spiritual food court looks pretty attractive, right? We, we look over there and we wonder what that tastes like. Sometimes we wonder if the word of God really does work. We experience heartache and hardship and, and disillusionment. Sometimes we wonder if it's really able to, to nourish and sustain us. What if, what if there's something else, right? Sometimes we wonder if we're simply too far gone. Like, I have messed this up so bad, there's no way that a word of pardon could possibly be for me. The prophet continues, the Lord continues through his prophet where God invites us to listen in verses one to five. Now he exhorts us to trust, to take him at his word in verses six to 13, to trust his promises, especially his promise of forgiveness. So if you look at verse six, we have another invitation, uh, though this one is more direct and more urgent. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So what Isaiah is offering in these verses is really the same thing he offered in the first section. It's life with God. You know, whereas in verse 1, he appealed to the weary and the thirsty. Here, he appeals to the wayward and the wicked. But what they both need is the exact same thing. They need the Lord. They need a relationship with God, reconciliation, forgiveness, pardon. While as we're reminded later in, in Isaiah 59 that our sins have separated us from God. God's posture towards sinners is one of compassion. He is compassionate. He is, I mean, look at the promise. Return that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He's not just going to kind of erase, you know, when you erase something, you can still kind of read the print underneath. Like, it's not really gone. Uh-uh. He's... He, he doesn't just blot it out. He tears it out of the ledger, crumples it up, burns it, and buries the ashes in the bottom of the sea. Like that is his abundant pardon. That's his posture towards sinners. Compassion. That's what he wants for sinners. He invites us to find pardon and forgiveness and acceptance in his son. And he warns us not to wait. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Again, Ray Ortland helps us understand this. He, he writes that to seek the Lord is to stop dawdling and become intentional about him. Setting 
the highest value on him, removing everything that keeps me from him, hearing his word without backtalk, opening up to his will with no preconditions, budgeting our money for his cause first, and the ever-widening circle is endless. Seeking the Lord is a whole life realignment with Christ. We stop treating him as a religious garnish on the side. He becomes our continual feast, our defining center. And the time to move in that direction is now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. We cannot allow ourselves to think that we can put off the most important thing in life, the very meaning of life, and just come back to it at our convenience. We do not know what the future holds. If we've learned anything from the last 15 months, we're not in control of any of this, right? But God is. The Lord is. And he wants us to take him at his word because his word of pardon is for us. It's for us. He actually gives us three reasons to take him at his word, to trust his promise here. Notice how verse 8, verse 10, and verse 12 all begin with the same word, with for. He's giving us reasons to heed his word. And the first one is in verses 8 to 9. First reason we can take God's word of pardon uh, for what it is, is that his ways are not petty and small like ours are. That's reason number one. I mean, one of the reasons we're tempted to doubt God's word of forgiveness to us is because we know that's not how we operate when somebody betrays us, right? I mean, when we are hurt, uh, when we have been wronged, when we've just simply been insulted or neglected, we want justice, right? We want, we want them to feel the pain and, and hurt and frustration that they have caused upon us. And so the idea that the God of the universe is going to overlook my treason against his kingdom or, or that my continual failure to do what I know I should do or to not do what I know I shouldn't do, that, that he's just, he would really forgive that, it's not how it works. There's a catch somewhere, right? But listen to verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the, as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The fact that our ways and thoughts are often petty and small shouldn't cloud our vision of what God is inviting us to here. Just because we typically deal with our adversaries uh, differently or just because we've been promised mercy from someone who then didn't follow through, like that word was betrayed, that doesn't mean God is lying when he promises to forgive those who seek him. His ways are not our ways. And, and According to, to Isaiah here, they're not just different from our ways. They're better. They're higher than our ways, right? 
above us and beyond us. The mercy of God towards sinners is, in fact, utterly incomprehensible to us, right? That, that's, something, that's, that's something that we would never come up with on our own or never be capable of doing on our own. But it is the very mercy of God he has revealed to us in his son, Jesus. Okay. A mercy that doesn't just neglect justice, right? We want that justice when we've been wronged. Jesus deals with that by taking it on himself so that he can then act mercifully toward those who deserve the opposite. We can take God at his word and trust his promise of redemption because his ways are not petty and small like ours. The second reason we can take him at his word is that his word, unlike anyone else's, uh, his word accomplishes what he sends it to do. If you look at verses 10 and 11, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I mean, imagine if every email you sent actually accomplished what you sent it to do, right? Wouldn't that be amazing? You, know, you, need a, you, you write your professor or your teacher because you need an extension on an assignment, or you, you, you send a memo to your boss because you need more funding for the project, and they always answer yes, right? That would be amazing, but of course, our words are not that powerful. I can't get people to respond to my emails half the time, right? And I don't particularly always return the favor. Our words are often misunderstood, misconstrued, they're ignored. Our words can backfire, they can be taken out of context, they can become lost in the void. Everything that comes from the mouth of God accomplishes exactly what he sends it to do. From his word of creation, speaking everything that exists into existence, to his word of salvation, speaking life into spiritually dead people, to his word of sanctification, convicting us of sin and making us more like his son. And, and here in our context, his word of pardon to sinners like us. God's word never falls short of what he sends it to do. It never gets lost in the void. It never backfires. It never fails. Which doesn't mean that we always see its purpose. Like God always sees the purpose. We may not be clued into that, right? There, there were times when ancient Israel felt that God's word had failed. Right here in Isaiah, they talk about that. There are times that the early church felt like God's word had failed. Times we, we all feel that, especially in, in disruptive seasons like what we've been living through. But just because God's word does not accomplish what we think it will, when we think it will, or how we think it will, doesn't mean it's broken. It doesn't mean it's broken. We may not be clued into the purpose, but God is, and he hits his target 100% of the time. 
We can trust his promises. And if you're tempted to doubt that, and if you're tempted to doubt that, that means you're human, right? That's a big promise that God always accomplishes. That's a big deal. If you're tempted to doubt that, the greatest example of his faithfulness to his word was his faithfulness in sending his son. I mean, he promised to do that. Jesus didn't show up out of the blue one day and say, don't worry, I got this. He, he, God promised from the very beginning, as soon as our relationship with God disintegrated in the garden, as soon as things fell apart at the very beginning in Genesis 3, God promised that a day would come when the serpent's head would be crushed by the offspring of the woman. And, and, you know, you take a book like Isaiah, we see that promise unfold throughout this prophecy. The promise of a son who would be born of a virgin called Emmanuel in chapter 7. Of a child whose name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace in chapter 9. Promise of a king who would reign in righteousness in 32, of a servant who would bring forth justice in 42, whose assignment would be bigger than just bringing back the preserved of Israel, but who would be a light to the nation so that God's salvation would go to the ends of the earth in chapter 49, a descendant of David who will call a nation who did not know him and they will come running in chapter 55. God promised what he would do. And on the day Christ was born, God's promise stepped into this created world. He took on flesh. He is the word of God incarnate in the flesh. The one in whom all of their promises of God find their yes. And so here's the deal. If if God kept his word in sending his son, in giving that which was most precious to him, then as the Apostle Paul puts it, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Like if he kept the main promise, he can keep the little ones too. His word will always do what he sends it to do. And then finally, the third reason we should take God at his word, even in our sin, even in our doubt, the third reason is that he alone is able to make all things new in the end. That's what we see in verses 12 to 13. For you shall go out in joy... And be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You know, for a people who are facing the dread of exile, the people Isaiah is preaching to, the promise that he says here, the promise that you're going to go home one day, that you're going to go out with singing and be led forth in peace from that land of exile, that's a big promise. That's, that's, there's hope there to get you through a dark night. 
You know, after, after being displaced, so when, when the storm happened and our roof was lost, we were out of our building for four months, and then we were back into our gym, but we couldn't get back in the sanctuary for another four months or five months or something like that. You know, the promise that one day we'd be able to gather once again, that was good news, right? It was glorious when that day happened to be, you know, to go out from our temporary home in joy and be led forth, forth in peace back into our sanctuary, And yet, Israel's historical return to the land from their exile did not exactly usher in a paradise for them, nor did being able to use our building again. Because what God promises here was so much bigger than that, right? The imagery here is cosmic renewal, like the mountains singing, the trees clapping, it's a picture of the earth being healed. Now, when uh, shortly after the storm that, that uh, came through, I was talking with one of our members about their experience in the storm, and it, it's one of these things that, you know, it's like a new 9-11 for people who lived in Cedar Rapids. Where were you when the storm hit type thing? And so we were talking about that and reflecting on it, and one of the, uh, what caught her attention in the storm as she was taking shelter was seeing the trees just bending so low to the ground, some of them all the way down, and recognizing in that moment, even the trees know who their master is. The very trees that bow down before him in the storm will one day clap their hands when Christ returns and God makes all things new. That's the imagery here. And and more than just a cosmic renewal, the, the imagery of these verses envisions the reverse of the curse from Genesis 3, the curse that entered the world when humanity sinned against God. In the beginning, the thorns and the thistles that were part of that punishment for our sin plaguing the ground, well, here they're gone. They're done away with. This is the promise of a world made right. It's it's the very promise we confessed together earlier with the New City Catechism this morning. That beyond what else has Christ's death done, it's beginning to make all things new. And when he returns, he will finish that work. And as that new creation, as we look upon it one day, it will stand as a sign that God kept his word. An everlasting sign sign that shall not be cut off, a picture of the unyielding faithfulness of God. There's no shortage of people promising us a perfect world today. I mean, every car commercial, right? Every political ad, celebrity singing Imagine by John Lennon together. There's no shortage of people promising a perfect world. There's only one person who's able to deliver on that promise. And he will be faithful despite the chaos and the convulsions of this world today. And when you think about it, you know, Romans 8, when you think about the chaos and convulsions of this fallen world, what they are, according to Paul, are simply the birth pangs of the new creation to come. And so God invites us to listen to his word, to make it a priority of of all that's unstable in our world right now. Keep focusing on that which provides the sure 
foundation. The word of God, the promise of his gospel. Come to the feast. Seek him without delay. And as you feast on God's word, trust what you hear. Take him at his word. We can trust his word of promise. We can trust his word of pardon because his ways are not petty and small like ours because his word always accomplishes what he sends it to do and because he alone is able to make all things new in the end. That is God's word of promise. So why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live. Let's pray. Gracious Father, may we hear your word of promise. May we hear it. May we believe it. And I pray, Lord, for all who are gathered here, all who are gathered at home watching online. Lord, would your word this morning accomplish precisely what you send it to do? Where we are wrestling with doubt, would you strengthen us? Where we are wrestling under conviction of sin, shame and guilt, would we feel that word of pardon? Lord, would, wherever we are, would your word do in us what you send it to do? That, that you might be seen in all of the glory that you deserve and that we might know and be satisfied, that we, we might drink from the only water that truly quenches our thirst. Lord, we ask it in the powerful name of Christ. Amen.